walk, believe, or walk. Daniel, walk, believe, or walk. Daniel, walk, tell you walk. Daniel, walk, tell you walk. Daniel, don't believe or shout. Daniel, believe or shout. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. I am with unwavering commitment to the cause of great conversation, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finneran. Thank you all so very much for joining me today. If, dear friend, you find the conversations on this channel enlightening, entertaining, stimulating to the mind, or nourishing to the soul, please do consider subscribing to this channel. What we have here is a small but growing community of inquisitive minds and fearless thinkers, among which and among whom, I can assure you, yours most certainly belongs. Be sure to like this channel, share it with a good friend, family member, and subscribe to this channel for more content. Now, my guest today, with whom I'm most fortunate to have the chance to talk, is James Elman. A graduate of Tufts and Harvard Universities, James is the author of four books, Hitler's Great Gamble, Operation Barbarossa, The Axis Defeat in World War II, and his latest work, uh, MacArthur Reconsidered, of which I have, and uh, you should promptly get yourself a copy once this episode has concluded. Uh, when he's not writing erudite books about history, James is an investor overseeing mutual funds. He resides with his family on the crown jewel of the Pacific, Oahu, Hawaii. James, thank you so very much for agreeing to join me today. Great to be with you, Daniel. So before we get into the argument for his being reconsidered and undivinized, perhaps knocked down a peg or two, tell us in brief, who was Douglas MacArthur? Well, to start with, my book tries to look at what made Douglas MacArthur famous. And at the end of the day, while there are many things he did besides being a military commander of large bodies of men in wartime, such as being chief of staff of the army during peacetime, during the depression in Washington, or being the uh, US administrator of the occupation of Japan after World War II. He really is famous for being a wartime commander. So I tried to strip away the extraneous parts of his life and focus on whether or not he was indeed a great commander mediocre commander or a poor commander. And I come to the conclusion that he was a relatively poor commander and in many ways, the most dangerous general in US history for a country that believes in having a democracy and the military reporting to the civilian government with elected leaders. Right. So in terms of Douglas, he was born an army brat of a famous General Arthur MacArthur Jr., who had won the Medal of Honor in the Civil War and then had gone on to lead the U.S. force that suppressed the Philippine insurrection when the U.S. conquered the Philippines in 1900. His mom, Mary, or went by Pinky, was a real helicopter mom who followed him around his entire life. And he was going to go into the family business, which was the army, that was always the plan. He did go into the army. He was the top uh, graduate of West Point. 
He uh, moved up relatively quickly uh, under his father's tutelage. He served with his father for quite a while. One of his father's aides said he had never met a more egotistical man than General Arthur MacArthur until he met his son. It tells you a little bit about the person. Douglas MacArthur became a real wartime hero, an uh, American hero in World War I, where he performed great feats of courage on the battlefield in France. His mom, Pinky, engaged in a big letter-writing campaign to generals who had often served under Arthur MacArthur earlier in their careers, demanding that her son be promoted quickly. And she was successful in this. He became the youngest general in the U.S. Army. And later, after World War I concluded, he became the youngest major general in the U.S. Army. After being chief of staff, where he had a very contentious relationship with two presidents, Hoover and then Roosevelt, he moved off to the Philippines, where he had been stationed in the past, which he thought of as his second home. And he was made the field marshal of the new Philippine army, of the new Philippine Commonwealth, which was a, a quasi-independent state under U.S. tutelage, and the U.S. was going to grant full independence to the Philippines in 1946. And his job was to raise an army that would allow the Philippines to resist any attack, most likely from Japan. And of course, on December 7th in 1941, the Japanese did attack the United States and we were at war. And unfortunately, when it came time for MacArthur to be a wartime leader of large bodies of men, he failed miserably. Yeah, and you strip away some of the adornments, I think, that have been heaped upon him through history, and you really get to the objective standards by which we should judge someone. As I was reading your book, I, I was reminded maybe of, a, of an athlete who is able to advertise him or herself well, is in a lot of commercials, um, has a big entourage, but maybe doesn't have the statistics to back it up. That was my understanding of Arthur after, after having read your book. And we'll get into some of the specifics, but maybe you can just comment very briefly on the duration of his career. Like you said, he rose uh, at a precipitously fast rate. Uh, he, he was, again, uh, sort of a wunderkid of sorts coming up under the tutelage of his uh, esteemed father, Arthur MacArthur. Um, he had roles in multiple administrations spanning from, you know, like you said, Hoover to Truman. Uh, so maybe you can just comment on the length of his career. Well, the length of his career is really quite remarkable. He had one foot in the 1800s and one in the modern atomic age. He was born in 1880 on a military base out in what was then the old West, uh, riding on horses, trying to fight Indians. He then, of course, uh, fought in World War I, the first great mechanized war in world history. Then he saw the rise of airplanes, tanks, machine guns, jet fighters, eventually atomic weapons. And by the end of his career, when he was in charge of the UN, US-led force in Korea, he was calling for 
all-out nuclear campaign of destruction against the People's Republic of China. So quite a, a great swath of history from the days of horses to the days of jet bombers dropping atomic weapons. And one would think that that perspective acquired through that long duration of time would make a man somewhat more hesitant and somewhat less bellicose in his positions as he aged. But it seemed to have been just the contrary for, for MacArthur. Um, maybe you can comment a little bit on that. Do you think that was just his personality type? Or do you think that he really understood uh, the transition from these somewhat primitive forms of warfare to what we were seeing? We were on the very uh, we were at the very outset of atomic warfare at this time. Well, one of MacArthur's favorite sayings was, there is no substitute for victory. And he believed that if you entered into war, you should fight until you achieve complete and utter victory. And often in US history, we have fought that way. But there have been times, and there have been times before MacArthur, during MacArthur, and after his death, where the US has fought limited wars for limited purposes for limited victories. Hmm. And he really had difficulty understanding and accepting that. And particularly, he had that after World War II, once we were in a situation where we were up against global communism, particularly the Soviet Union, and he fought hard against President Truman and Truman's administration that did not want to fight World War III, did not want a global conflagration with fighting that stretched all across the Eurasian landmass and likely would lead to the overrunning of the democracies in Western Europe by the Soviet Union. But MacArthur didn't care because he wanted his victory in Korea and could not fathom fighting for a draw, fighting for an armistice along the 38th parallel, which is where, where the war began. And he wanted to win. He always wanted to win in his famous uh, address to the joint session of Congress after he was fired by Truman and he, he finished with the, the discussion of uh, old soldiers never die, they just fade away. He did mention there is no substitute for victory and much of his presentation to Congress and then in Senate hearings afterwards were why we needed to fight to achieve victory in Korea, even if that meant we had to nuke most of the major cities in China and lead to a World War III. On which side do you come down? Uh, the side of limited warfare and some of the um, unsuccesses that we've had with that recently, one can point to Vietnam and Afghanistan, the recent withdrawal, or to the MacArthurian approach of the, something more final. Well, that, that gets into something I think a bit greater than MacArthur. Uh, the US has fought some wars where it wanted or believed it needed complete victory and others where limited victory was acceptable. If we step back for a moment, I, I adhere to the viewpoint that the main strategy of the United States has been over time increased in size. At first it was, let's protect the eastern part of the North America. 
from foreign inter intervention. Then it was the entirety of North America as we pushed for what was referred to as manifest destiny. And in those wars, we fought with no quarter. You could certainly say that about the hundreds of wars where we engaged in genocide against uh, the American Indians. You can certainly say that the Mexican-American War was a war where the US was only willing to accept complete victory, which allowed our nation to stretch from the Atlantic to the Pacific. But after that point, the US has increasingly moved on to a strategy of making sure that no hegemonic power arises on the Eurasian landmass that can threaten our safety here across our oceanic moats. And I think the wars we have fought have often been focused on that way of thinking in that in World War I, the United States believed it needed to stop the central powers, primarily Germany, from becoming a hegemonic power in Eurasia. Something similar, of course, took place in World War II. We felt we needed to stop the Nazis. We needed to stop the Japanese. We could not allow them to become so powerful that they could attack us here. The Cold War, of course, was something similar. And some of the wars that have been uh, brutal in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Lebanon, Vietnam, since uh, the end of World War II, uh, Korea as well, have been wars where the US has primarily been fighting to make sure that no hegemonic power arises that can threaten us. And in those wars, it certainly seems to make more sense that we can accept uh, limited war for limited aims and a negotiated peace. Yeah. All the while. Uh, Sorry, yeah, I don't uh, want to. I don't want to make too many comment. Uh, you know, comment on the morality of what I just laid out. But I do believe that is a realistic view of what U.S. foreign policy has been for the last two hundred years. Yes, and that's precisely why I want to pick your brain on these things, because of your objective perspective that you so masterfully outlined in your book. Um, I want to know some of your thoughts about current contemporary issues into which we'll get in a little while, but um, that certainly gives me a good perspective of, of your thinking on this. Um, so we talked a little bit about MacArthur's biography and you painted a, in just a couple minutes time, a, a wonderful and, and I think thorough sketch. Uh, so tell us now, and this is the argument of your book, why must this iconic American hero undergo a, a reconsideration? Well, I think with MacArthur, we can maybe step back and think a little bit about what Dwight D. Eisenhower said, who was MacArthur's aide in both Washington, D.C. and then in the Philippines. He said at one point, man, but he was smart about MacArthur. He also said, I can't understand how such an idiot ever got to be a general. And I think both of those statements are entirely true about MacArthur. He was a brilliant man but he was one who thought he was smarter than everybody else. And he could not learn anything from anybody else. People could learn from him. He always, he made the mistake as a military leader of always assuming he knew what the enemy would do rather than considering what could the enemy do. And tens of thousands of US soldiers died as a result. 
and he oversaw and commanded two of the greatest defeats in U.S. history, one in Luzon, 1941, 1942, and then in the northern part of Korea in 1950, 1951. He also believed in uh, a certain level of politics that since he was so right and his beliefs were so correct, and he happened to be a relatively hardcore Republican, that he shouldn't have to listen to the presidents, particularly when he disagreed with them. And I would say one of his greatest legacies is that the US military has rejected the Douglas MacArthur's of the world. They may study some of his battles and some of his victories. They certainly also study his defeats. But if you look at the generals and the admirals today, they work assiduously to stay out of politics while they are in uniform. Uh, they don't want to be pulled into partisan politics, particularly in our very uh, uh, contentious age where there is such great polarization in our nation. Um, General Milley, uh, I don't know if anyone couldn't really avoid controversy if you're uh, working in the Trump administration and he was uh, not alone in uh, becoming controversial at this point. And I was going I was going to raise his name. Yeah. I'll just interject really quickly. Sure. When I when I talk to some people about this issue, it seems like there's a um, there's an idea that exists, rather rather rightly or wrongly, that the upper brass of our military is highly political or has become highly politicized as of late, but the rank and file are relatively apolitical. Uh, and I, this isn't applicable only to the military. It seems to be the case, or in people's thinking, the case um, for the FBI and the CIA and the other sort of the intelligence communities of that sort. So uh, how would you respond to people who make that charge? Is there any ground to it? I, I, I do not believe that the brass in the military have become partisan, uh, at least uh, in public. I'm sure that each and every flag officer in the U.S. military has strong political opinions, may tend to vote for one party versus another, but I think they work as hard as they can to not show those colors in public. Uh, I don't know as much about the, um, the rank and file, but there's an old saying that any general in the U.S. Army right now, of course, he's a politician, but yeah. that's a politician trying to get his star and get another star and then another star uh, versus versus getting up in Washington, either at a podium or in front of a congressional committee and saying that he supports the Republicans or he reports the Democrats. Uh, I do think that the military brass works very hard not to do that and to appear as a competent, technocratic, nonpartisan organization in the United States. Of course, once you leave office and hang up the uniform, you're welcome to go run for president. Uh, however, we haven't really had that many former military leaders running for president of late. MacArthur stands out in that he ran for president three times while in uniform. 
And uh, there's now a law against that. And I don't believe we would see that again. And I do think most of these colonels, captains, generals in the Navy and in the Army uh, would be very unhappy seeing um, a political, partisan political leader in the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Washington. That is not what they want. They believe that would erode their readiness. They believe it would um, undermine the competence uh, of the military and its support from all sides of the political spectrum in the United States. So when we talk of military leaders, highly popular military leaders becoming political um, leaders, uh, one's mind is automatically drawn back to Julius Caesar. Now, in his widely popular 1978 book, American Caesar, to which you make reference in your book, biographer William Manchester compared MacArthur to Julius Caesar. Now, having thoroughly studied the man, do you think that this comparison is apt, or is Manchester perhaps stretching a bit, uh, stretching a bit too far uh, in his effort to link the two together? Well, American Caesar, it's a great title, and I'm sure it helped sell some books. Um, however, he was not a Caesar. Caesar was able to win many battles when he was massively outnumbered. He understood his foes and he figured out ways to defeat them. MacArthur often was defeated by his foes and found ways to blame others for his faults. Um, under Caesar, many of his subordinates came to real prominence. Under MacArthur, he refused to allow the press to give any real support to any of his generals that did great things. Most Americans know of Eisenhower's subordinate generals in Europe. They know about Omar Bradley. They know about George S. Patton. Uh, but very few know the name of Robert Eichelberger or Walter Kruger or George Kenney, who were absolutely fabulous, effective leaders in the Pacific under MacArthur's uh, uh, umbrella. But we do have um, Robert Eichelberger saying once to a, I believe it was a Time Magazine journalist, that I would rather have you drop a live rattlesnake in my pants than mention me in one of your articles because MacArthur had already threatened to fire him and send him back to the States if he got too much press. And if I may interject, your, your book does an exquisite job of acknowledging some of these commanders that worked under MacArthur, these sort of uncelebrated figures who were in a difficult situation with such a um, tempestuous and egotistical boss. Uh, so I found that part, among other parts, really invaluable because it acquainted me with some names uh, with whom I otherwise wouldn't have been very, very much uh, familiar. So I have to thank you for that. And anyone who's curious about some of these other players that were you know, significant in the Pacific theater, a book like this is certainly worth your, worth your reading for that reason alone. So I just wanted to add that in really quickly before I forgot. Oh, I, I would uh, very much like to point out that my book is not an anti- American book, nor an anti-U.S. military book. It's somewhat, uh, I think, trying to give a fair and reasoned view of MacArthur's strengths, and he had many, and his weaknesses. 
One of his greatest strengths was his ability to identify and promote and put in positions to succeed the best officers to be field commanders. Uh, of course, one of his weaknesses was not allowing those field commanders to get their due uh, in the press so that the American people knew about them. And in fact, I would say that Matthew Ridgway, who took over in Korea when MacArthur was fired, uh, but was the field commander in Korea beforehand after um, the beginning of 1951, when MacArthur had said, we needed to evacuate Korea because of the intervention of the um, People's Republic of China forces. Matthew Ridgway is arguably the greatest U.S. military leader in our nation's history, and yet he's still relatively unknown today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and he bears uh, an excellent nickname. If you've never heard this, you probably have, you surely have. And maybe we can contrast nicknames and, and rank them. Uh, Douglas MacArthur was known somewhat unaffectionately by, by his men as Dugout Doug, and perhaps you can tell us exactly why. Matthew Ridgway bore the, the much more intimidating nickname of Old Iron Tits, <laughs> which always cracks me up. I love that nickname. So so comment, a, for a moment, if you would, on Dugout Doug and how he received that nickname. Well, first, just to mention on Ridgway's uh, nickname was because even though he was a multi-star general, he was always seen around the, uh, the, the battlefield in combat fatigues and wearing a uh, grenade on one chest uh, strap and a um, metal um, med kit on the other. And that's where his nickname came from. Now, uh, the idea of the general uh, at that rank actually needing a grenade seems uh, unlikely. However, I will mention that Ridgway was um, a paratrooper general uh, in World War II. Paratrooper generals, uh, airborne generals, jumped with their men, and he was actually wounded by a grenade by the Germans in World War II to give you an idea of how close he was to the action. Now, moving on to Dugout Doug. After the beginning of World War II, MacArthur had several hours' notice in Manila that the Japanese were about to attack him. He had a very large and significant and modern air force, a larger air force than what the U.S. Army Air Force had in Hawaii at the beginning of Pearl Harbor. However, he froze up, refused to do anything, and more than half of that Air Force was destroyed on the ground several hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor and after he was informed that an attack was forthcoming. He lost air superiority the first day of the war. Then he continued to stick with his plan, which was to defend Luzon, the main island of the Philippines, on the beaches. This was in contrast to War Plan Orange that had been around since the 1910s, 1920s, which said that unfortunately the Philippines is just too far away from the mainland of the US, even too far away from Hawaii and too close to Japan, and particularly too close to the Japanese military bases on the island of Formosa, now known as Taiwan, to be defended. And the plan was for the US garrison to retreat to the peninsula of Bataan and the small island of Corregidor off its coast, 
that dominates the entrance to Manila Harbor and hold out there as long as possible and deny Manila Harbor to the Japanese for as long as possible, even though it's likely help would not arrive before the garrison fell. MacArthur refused to do this, even though he had received significant reinforcements from the U.S. because he had said he could defend Luzon. He had raised an army of more than 100,000 men. He said he could defeat a Japanese landing force of upwards of 100,000 men. The Japanese landed 40,000 men along the Lingayen Gulf beaches, exactly where MacArthur thought they would land. And pretty much everyone else expected them to land there. And that's exactly where MacArthur landed when he came back in 1945. That's strategically the place you land. And MacArthur's troops, his Philippine troops, scattered in front of the, the Japanese. And MacArthur failed to send forward his best troops. For example, he had a Marine regiment that was a veteran regiment. He didn't use them. He had 100 modern battle tanks. He didn't use them. Um, and he ended up having to quickly retreat to Bataan and Corregidor. He got most of his men there. The problem is he had forgotten to supply that bastion to hold out in a long siege, even though that had been the plan for more than 20 years. Most of the supplies that should have been there fell into Japanese hands, either on the docks of Manila or on the Luzon Plain in, in warehouses. So his men began to starve and suffer from malaria and other tropical diseases almost as soon as the um, the siege began. Now, MacArthur hung out in the Malinta Tunnel, a fortified tunnel on the island of Corregidor, for almost all of the next few months during the siege. He was somewhat akin to Achilles, uh, sulking in his tent rather than going out to fight, even though he had been a great wartime leader along trench lines in World War I. But he only went to Bataan where those trench lines were, where the front lines were, once in multiple months. And the question is, why didn't he go and see his men and help try and manage the defense? Um, Manchester in American Caesar said he knew he was going to lose. He knew they were going to have to surrender or be overrun, and he just couldn't face them eye to eye. Uh, that sounds like a good uh, description of cowardice to me. Uh, and one could even say dereliction of duty, particularly in some of the reverses the U.S. military suffered on Bataan as the, as the Japanese slowly compressed the front lines. In any event, many of his troops on Bataan began to refer to him as Dugout Doug because he was hanging out in his dugout, a tunnel, a fortified tunnel, rather than being out there with them. Um, I'm not sure that's really a fair uh, description in that he had shown himself to be quite courageous in World War I, and later in World War II, he was quite courageous. In fact, during World War I, he told everyone who would listen that he was a man of destiny. No bullet had been made with his name on it yet. He could not be killed, and he was going to rise to great heights of power on the battlefield, and eventually, of course, he did. Yeah, I, some of that exalted language and confidence in oneself, almost boastfulness, I suppose does have a place in lifting the morale of, of your men, but only when it's attached to action, only when you actually exhibit courageous behavior. And I think you're absolutely right. At best, it was a dereliction of duty to dig in in Corregidor and, and, and certainly not to supply those islands to which 
they were supposed to strategically retreat. And of course, that led to disastrous effects, most famously or infamously, the, the death march, right? Um, uh, very briefly, I want to jump back because you said Achilles, and now that has me thinking in Grecian and Roman terms. <laughs> uh, our founding fathers um, tried to exemplify the figure Cincinnatus, uh, who, for those listening, um, uh, who aren't familiar with this figure, was a, was a Roman statesman in general of, of the Roman Republic, probably the 5th century BC. Uh, and he famously was kind of offered a dictatorship, but denied it and went back after a battle to his, to his plow, to his farm. And they would contrast that type of figure to the Caesarian figure, the, the Julius Caesar type, who, who took the opportunity to cross the Rubicon and ultimately take control, political control of, of the Roman Empire. Maybe you can just comment on those two figures very briefly, bringing them together and kind of tying a little knot. Well, MacArthur definitely seemed a bit more like a Caesar or a Roman emperor in terms of his uh, entourage, that uh, he surrounded himself while he chose great field commanders. He chose what Eisenhower referred to as bootlickers for his staff. Many of them were quite incompetent. Many of them were very reactionary in their politics. One of them was actually referred to by MacArthur as his pet fascist. Uh, was General Willoughby, uh, his intelligence commander, uh, thought that Fr General Francisco Franco was the greatest man alive. And in fact, after he left the US Army, he became a lobbyist for Francesco Franco. Um, MacArthur were the trappings of, you could say, an American Caesar, an Amer American emperor with his uh, prop extra long corncob pipe and his aviator sunglasses and uh, his rumpled hat. Um, in comparison to maybe someone like a, a Robert Eichelberger who was a bit more like a, a Cincinnatus perhaps, who um, was almost always at the front with his men who uh, during the Battle of Buna in Papua New Guinea lost 30 or 40 pounds in just a couple of months and suffered uh, greatly with his men in a malarial swamp with uh, uh, no hot food, a uh, few supplies fighting against uh, Japanese and in some of the most horrid circumstances. Um, that was definitely not what MacArthur was in World War II and definitely not in Korea. So um, again, going back perhaps to your analogy of a uh, sports figure with a uh, a lot of great endorsements and uh, flashy clothes and a big entourage, but maybe when he gets on the field, is doesn't have the best stats. Uh, that is certainly a, a relatively fair way of thinking about MacArthur, except we're not just thinking about sports, we're thinking about a man who attempted to overrule the President of the United States to begin a nuclear war and tried his very best to undermine a peace process that President Truman was in the middle of, uh, of trying to engineer to um, lead to a truce in Korea. It's no surprise that Roosevelt referred to, um, FDR Roosevelt, referred to MacArthur as the most dangerous man in America. He was concerned he was going to be a great man on horseback who is going to become an authoritarian leader who would overthrow the democratic principles of our republic.
Do you think that our nation is institutionally immune to that sort of incident ever happening in the future? <laughs> no, unfortunately, I think we're potentially on the cusp of, of having that again. Uh, look, there are many patriotic Americans who uh, are excited to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, this is either despite or because he says he plans to weaponize the Justice Department. He plans to uh, fire tens of thousands of career civil servants and wants to bend the government to his personal will. Um, many of these people who uh, want to vote for him and want to vote against him are true patriots. They have the best interests of the country at heart, but certainly it, it's hard to see that with some of the plans we're hearing about for uh, Project 2025, I believe it's called at the Heritage Foundation, how that meshes with the concept of uh, limited federal government uh, and freedom that many of the people actually putting that plan together claim to promote. Yeah, so many pundits, much more sagacious than I, uh, they foresee um, a future that you just outlined. Um, do you think that we are closer to the end of the Roman Republic, again, to borrow an analogy that seems to be historically applicable, um, or perhaps in a different era? Do you, do you foresee the ascension, if not of uh, Donald Trump, a, a later dictatorial figure? I guess the question is, is it an inevitability that something like this happens in a democracy like ours? This is something about which you know, all the classical thinkers um, wrote, Aristotle, Plato, the, the cycle of regimes. So what are your predictions for the future, both sort of short-term and, and long-term for this country? I know it's a large question and a, kind of a daunting one. Well, I like to be, you know, I like to be, uh, uh, say that I'm an optimist betting against the United States of America and its constitutional government has been a, a bad bet for hundreds of years. And I hope it will continue for great many generations to come. This is not the only uh, contentious partisan time in U.S. history. Um, some of the things that were said in the uh, early 1800s by uh, politicians about other politicians were pretty darn bad, uh, calling each other hermaphrodites and uh, uh, in league with Lucifer, etc. Um, in the Civil War, you had another Mac uh, uh, running as president against President Lincoln, hoping to end the war if he had been elected and uh, leading to the secession of half the country as the Confederacy, where slavery would have been enshrined forever. Um, at the end of MacArthur's era, when he was still in charge in, um, uh, in 1948, 1947, when he was still in charge of the uh, colonial regime in, uh, occupation regime in Japan, Truman was so concerned that MacArthur was going to win, he showed the level of patriotism to go to Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was then president of Columbia University, and saying, I am so worried about MacArthur being a man on horseback and riding in and taking over this country. I would like you to run as president on the Democratic ticket, and I will be your vice president. He was actually president at the time and was willing to become vice president to Dwight D. Eisenhower solely to protect the nation. Uh, 
I was shocked by that little nugget of history that you included in the book. I had no no idea that happened. So the founders and the framers of our constitutional form of government believed that they should set up competing power centers that would be jealous of their own power in the three branches of our government and fight to keep that power. And to date, they continue to do so. And that has held the country together quite well. It's not always pretty. It's not always pleasant. But uh, the United States has generally been on a path of greater liberty, greater pursuit of happiness, greater wealth for an ever larger percentage of the people in our nation. And the United States has overseen the greatest blossoming of wealth and human uh, benefit in the last 75 years in all of human history. Yeah. Your previous three books were chiefly concerned with the European theater of, of World War II. Uh, while your latest book isn't about the Asiatic theater per se, but rather the most conspicuous commander uh, by whom its uh, land battles were overseen, uh, tell us what, it was, what was it like to shift your focus from one theater to the next? Uh, and by which, the Asiatic or the European, are you more fascinated? Oh, I, I'm afraid I, I really don't can't say that I, I would choose one versus another. I, I subscribe to the view of World War II as being two large regional wars, um, both uh, effectively colonial wars, one by Germany trying to expand to become the hegemonic power of the North European plain, and Japan attempting to become the hegemonic power of the East Asian rim that merged into one great global conflagration. Um, so I find the history of World War II incredibly fascinating. The stakes could not have been higher, and the personalities were just amazing. I mean, you've got FDR, and you've got Stalin, and you've got Churchill, and you've got Mao, and you've got Patton, and you have MacArthur, and you have Rommel. These are interesting characters yeah. that were all scurrying about the world impacting its future. Uh, I'm currently working on a book. Uh, the working title is Victory from Defeat. Nine times when the United States was defeated and then found a way to recover and achieve victory. And of course, a couple of them will take place in a few of them in, in World War II, but also in the Revolutionary War, in uh, uh, the Civil War, and in Korea. And I find that to be a very interesting aspect of US military history, not just in World War II, but throughout our history, that maybe our greatest strength militarily has been the ability to react to defeats and find a way to win. I want to ask you a simple question. Why do wars begin and why do they end? Well. Um, you know, of course, Clausewitz's famous line is that wars are just uh, uh, politics through other means. Um, however, one thing that does seem interesting is how often wars begin that um, uh, the participants, or at least some of the participants, do not want to fight, and how often they can be pulled into wars that 
they don't want to fight, and it's not necessarily clear what their goals are, except sometimes to make sure that their opponents do not achieve victory, and it's difficult to win such a war. Um, the U.S. knew exactly what it wanted when it started the Mexican-American War. It wanted to seize the northern half of Mexico for itself, and it did, and there's everything from California through uh, New Mexico uh, has remained part of the United States, and it also enshrined that Texas would remain part of the United States. Um, it's not clear necessarily why we started our war, for example, in Afghanistan. We were attacked. We wanted to go and get rid of the people who had attacked us. We did that, and then our mission morphed into something much greater, into trying to create a democracy and uh, stand up a government in the nation of Afghanistan that had been the graveyard of multiple empires before. And um, it, it's surprising that uh, we were as successful as we were and able to keep the Taliban from taking over the country with such a small number of men. Um, in terms of uh, the, we can just see, look at the current war in Gaza with Israel. Israel did not want to be in Gaza. It had withdrawn from Gaza. It was trying to sign a peace agreement with Saudi Arabia and look a, ahead to a more globalized world. And uh, the uh, government in Gaza found a way to so enrage the Israeli government and Israeli public that we now have this open-ended war there. Now, in terms of what makes wars end, you perhaps have Tacitus's line that uh, the Romans, that um, uh, they, they made a wasteland and called it a peace. Sometimes when you absolutely destroy the opponent, that is one way that wars end. Sometimes, uh, for example, in uh, Russia, Russia tends to fight until it runs out of man manpower or wins. One or the other takes place. I'm not sure which one is going to happen in the Ukraine conflict. Um, sometimes you have cooler heads prevail and you're able to have uh, peace agreements that take place. Uh, that is what happened. That's how the Vietnam War ended. Most Americans forget that we signed a peace agreement with the Vietnamese in Paris, withdrew our forces, and South Vietnam was supposed to remain an independent country. And it certainly had defeated uh, the Viet Cong, at least as a force that could have overthrown South Vietnam. And of course, what actually took place is that North Vietnam invaded South Vietnam with Russian made or Soviet made main battle tanks. And while the U.S. had a treaty and were suppo was supposed to assist South Vietnam, we had given up our interest in fighting and we let our ally be overrun. So again, sometimes wars end simply when one side is exhausted from the fighting and no longer wishes to continue. That's so eloquently put. Uh, Klauschwitz, uh, to whom you made reference a little while ago, someone whom I want to bring back up. I actually had a prompt prepared based on one of his quotations. He listed two conditions to victory. He said that in the first place, the fighting forces must be destroyed, full stop. They must be put in such a condition that they can no longer carry on the fight. And then the second condition he listed is that the hostile country must be occupied. 
Otherwise, the enemy could raise fresh forces. And he goes on to say, yet both these things may be done and the war cannot be considered to have ended so long as the enemy's will has not been broken. In other words, so long as the enemy government and its allies have not been driven to ask for peace or the population to submit. I, I read this in preparation for our conversation uh, and it reminded me of the Gaza-Israel conflict right now. Uh, maybe you can comment on those two things a little bit. The fact that in an instance like this, it might be the case that the population's will needs to be dampened in such a way that it no longer can carry on the fight, much the way it happened in Germany or in Japan. It's an uncomfortable thought, but there might be some wisdom to what Clausewitz says. Uh, I think, obviously, there's uh, if, if you're trying to win a war, and it's a war of extermination, Clausewitz's lines are somewhat correct. But I don't believe that it necessarily holds true in many situations. First of all, it does not hold true when one or both of the combatants are uh, beholden to support supplies and weaponry from outside parties. Uh, to a certain extent, that is where we are right now in the um, uh, in the Gaza-Israeli war. Um, that is how many of the Israel wars against its Arab neighbors have ended, not with one side uh, losing its will to fight, one side having its forces uh, destroyed, as Clausewitz would have said, but simply through a ceasefire imposed by often in, in the, from 1948 to uh, the early 2000s, ceasefires imposed by the United States and the Soviet Union on the combatants. Now, that was not the case in World War II, as you mentioned, um, with what took place in Germany or Japan. Um, there was very little in the world attempting to withhold the power of the United States and the United Kingdom to kill as many civilians as possible in Germany and in Japan. Uh, McNamara, who uh, worked for the um, the USB-29 force that was bombing Japan eventually became Secretary of Defense in the US. He, he talked later that, said later that if we had lost the war, he and the, his fellow planners for the B-29 missions would have all been tried as war criminals. Hmm. Um, certainly uh, what happened in Dresden, what happened in Tokyo, what happened in Hiroshima, it's difficult to support in terms of how many today talk about war, how you can only specifically target clear military installations and any civilians who get in the way uh, and are killed, that's simply a war crime. I'm not sure that's the way the, the laws are actually written. I don't believe they are. And it's certainly not how, that is not the US way of war, which has been to utilize massive firepower often somewhat indiscriminately against our enemy. Mm. So I'm, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that Clausewitzian view, but I think we need to step back and think about the wars he in which he was engaged, which were these wars that were, were brutal, 
but were somewhat more uh, capture the flag sorts of wars that you had across Europe in the Napoleonic era um, that did not often lead to the uh, extinguishment of entire nation states and the peoples of those nations um, versus, unfortunately, some of the much more brutal wars we saw in the 20th century. Very eloquently put. And I thank you for that very thoughtful response uh, to a difficult question. Uh, we only have a few minutes remaining. I want you to tell us a little bit about your how you balance your twin passions, uh, history and finance. Uh, to which do you devote the majority of your brain power or your, your leisure time? Oh, I, I, it, it, there's not too much balance at this point in my life, uh, and there was not much balance in the past. Uh, I uh, came out of business school and uh, became a portfolio manager of mutual funds, eventually started a hedge fund and worked in the hedge fund space for 10 years, and uh, eventually got to the point where I was able to go back to uh, my great passion of history, particularly military history, and uh, I believed I had a few things to say and decided to write about them and shockingly have been able to get published and some people have actually read the books and I've had some terrible reviews, but I've had some good reviews. Uh, and I would say that uh, the New York Times, Thomas E. Ricks reviewed uh, my book, MacArthur Reconsidered. I think Thomas E. Ricks is a, a brilliant writer. He's won a couple of Pulitzers and... Uh, I should probably hang up my hat right now because it's all downhill from here. No, no, I see. Uh, I still uh, do some investing on the side, but I'm primarily uh, working on writing and studying uh, for the books that I'm trying to uh, finish right now. And I, I assure you, we're all the beneficiaries of, of your studies and your writings. It's unfathomable to think that you could receive a, a negative review, uh, except for maybe a, a Died in the wool, MacArthur partisan. <laughs> I could understand, uh, you know, a poor review coming from someone like that. Uh, now, had you not gotten into finance, do you think you would have pursued a, an academic career in history? Um, and that is uh, what I had thought I would do when I was in college, and um, I guess I just made some uh, monetary decisions to go in a different direction for a time. And I'm very happy with the choices I made and. One thing I would say about um, following industries and trading stocks uh, is uh, use many of the same sorts of uh, research skills and logic skills you do in studying history. Uh, so there, there is certainly overlap there. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about how those two are intertwined. I'm a big fan of an author by the name of uh, Neil Ferguson, who I think works out of Stanford's Hoover Institute. and. I don't think he's trained as a as an economist. He's a, I think he's a more of a historian of finance and a historian more more generally. Um, and I always find his work just captivating, as I do yours. I want to ask though, do you feel as though your um, your deep appreciation of history has actually improved your ability to forecast trends in the market uh, and become more successful as an investor? Uh, well, first, I it, it's a uh... I think this is that's the one and only time I will be compared with Nell Ferguson in the same sentence. He is a, a great uh, towering intellect and writer. He, uh, I believe he went to Oxford, uh, and uh, his, uh, his thesis became uh, The Pity of War, a, a great book about World War I that really 
changed how many people in the field think about that conflict. And uh, many of his uh, his writings since have, have only been that much stronger. If uh, there's a problem for him, it's that uh, uh, he also is a columnist and has gotten uh, himself involved with taking partisan views uh, in US politics, which uh, is something I would personally would like to stay away from. Um, in, in terms of uh, understanding history and how it might affect uh, economies, stock markets, investments, of course there's a great overlap. Uh, the old saying how uh, history doesn't always repeat itself, but often it rhymes. Knowing what happened in the past is, is very useful. I specialized in the banking industry, which moves from one boom to one bust and begins inflating the next bubble for the next boom, which will become the next bust. And we're beginning to see the beginning of the current new bust is taking place right now. And you can read about it every day and how bad the commercial real estate problem slash crisis will become uh, now that interest rates are high enough that lenders cannot just engage in what is referred to as extend and pretend on all these empty big office buildings and downtown cores. I am not really sure. I'm happy I'm not involved in charge of taking care of anybody else's money trying to figure that out anymore. I, I did that for 20 years and I'm happy to let someone else do that now. Happy to be holed up, dug out, dug out James in Oahu for, for the time. For the Absolutely. Time, for the time being. Well, in this uh, the ceaseless state of upheaval, what would you recommend, not as a fiduciary, but you know, what would you recommend a, a person do with his or her investments just in times like this when there's so much uncertainty? And no, this isn't an advertisement for gold or anything like that, but maybe just some basic advice to those of us who are uh, in search of, of some guidance. Well, uh, that's, that's a big question and pretty far away from MacArthur, uh, <laughs> who had uh, uh, was not necessarily a man who's driven by money. Um, I would say that uh, Sam Zell, the great real estate investor, learned the hard way and came to say that liquidity um, has great value in of itself. So making sure that one has at least a, enough um, liquid cash to be able to hold your way through um, uh, hard times is important. Uh, optionality is always valuable if you have the ability to to not make a decision uh, but have the same upside and you can hold off making that decision for time for some time you have the option to execute on an investment or not that is very valuable diversification is one of the few free lunches out there so uh, putting all your eggs in one basket is usually not a great idea uh, I guess if I have to mention one investment it certainly it would not be gold but i can point out there is an investment called the uh, series i savings bond uh, us all us investors can buy it you're only allowed to buy ten thousand dollars worth a year and uh, some of the tax benefits and the functionality of the series i bonds make them a, a very attractive investment and they are very cheap to buy uh, which is why almost no one ever tells you to buy them because no one makes any money if you buy them. You buy them directly from the US government. And uh, I certainly would suggest, or I tend to buy my $10,000 worth every year 
Uh, and if you keep doing that for a while, eventually you have a, a good nest egg there that will always keep up with inflation. Excellent advice. And I do apologize for deviating so far afield from MacArthur. <laughs> but with your combined expertise of these two fields, history and economics, I couldn't resist. So to all the listeners out there who are sort of curious, you know, what to do with their money in these times of upheaval, uh, pursue those few different investments uh, or those strategies. And James, just one final question I want to ask is, how is everything out in Hawaii? Uh, you know, after the, the fires in Maui, uh, Maui, we haven't really heard too much. So much has changed in the world since then. How is everything out there? Well, unfortunately, Hawaii is a place that is um, being impacted by climate change, just as um, uh, you have um, most of the rest of the United States. Uh, I, I believe that, you know, there's still people out there who certainly say they don't know if climate change is necessarily anthropomorphic, uh, you know, being, being caused by, by humans, uh, or if it's just taking place, but all the data does seem to see, say that we're having weather, weather patterns change and the nation is, is heating up or the globe is heating up. Uh, here in Hawaii, you have windward and you have leeward. So the eastern side of all the islands uh, are windward, and they get a lot more of the wind coming off the Pacific and they get much more rain. And leeward is where it's much drier and it's where most of the tourist hotels are because if you come on out here for a week, you want the best possible weather. And unfortunately that's where there uh, are brush fires. Um, there are many things the state is trying to do to um, mitigate the risk of future fires. And uh, I'm, very hopeful that uh, we'll be successful in that. Um, Hawaii has uh, real economic choices to make. It used to depend on what was referred to as the, tri the tripod. Uh, you had military, you had tourism, and you had agriculture. Unfortunately, agriculture is very much a, a, a very small industry here now with uh, globalization and trade. You can grow just about anything you can grow in Hawaii much more cheaply in many lower wage parts of the world. So we've got military, which is doing fine. And you've got tourism, where we have seen that it's a, a potentially a risky industry when you have things such as uh, COVID-19 and you have fires. Um, and uh, the current um, mayor of, of Honolulu and the governor have been trying to diversify the economy. And I hope uh, uh, that they will be somewhat successful in, in those endeavors. Yeah, uh, as, as do I and as do all of us watching. Thank you for that very candid and thorough um, uh, explanation of what's happening out in Hawaii. It's good to, to have an update on our, our most Pacific, uh, most Western state. So James, again, I can't thank you enough for being so generous with all your time. Um, of course, in my show notes below, I'll, I'll provide links to your latest book, your other books, your website. Now, is there anywhere else to which people should go in, in their attempts to find you? No, I think that would, would cover it, Daniel. I appreciate uh, you having me on today. It's been great talking and uh, uh, hope uh, you the best or wish you the best in the future. Of course. Thank you so very much. And to all of you listening, I bid thee farewell from Finneran's Wake.